Well, it's so great to see you. If you have your Bibles, uh, open them to Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13 uh, together this morning. We're going to be in one verse that in Hebrew has only two words as we look at the sixth commandment out of uh, the Ten Commandments that God gives us in Exodus chapter 20. If you're a guest with us today, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, We have been walking through uh, Exodus chapter 20 verse by verse over uh, these last few weeks. And so uh, what we do each and every week as we gather as a church family is we take time to open up the Word of God, the Bible, and uh, listen to it and pay attention to it because we believe that the Bible is how God speaks to us today. And He's got a special word for each and every one of us through the Scriptures uh, today. And so that's why we open our Bibles. We pay attention because we believe this is the Word of God for us uh, today. Back in April, <clears throat> a, uh, a ship in the Spanish Navy uh, that was on a mission in the Mediterranean Sea to update maps and improve nautical charts got stranded. It was a ship that was sent out to help other people navigate their way. And so they were taking measurements of the depth of the sea and so forth and paying attention to the contours of the sea and updating maps. And that was the purpose, was to help other people find their way. Meanwhile, they lost their own way and got caught on the sand and stranded on a beach there in the middle of the Mediterranean. What an irony that a ship that was sent out to help others navigate lost its own way. Well, I think about that story, and it makes me think of how it's so easy as Christians to read the Ten Commandments, and as believers in Christ who, in the midst of trying to help other people find their way through this world, sometimes lose our own way or, or run into the same problems that we're trying to help other people avoid. Or, or to put it another way, it's, it's easy sometimes that to think that the people who really need help are out there without realizing that those inside the church can face the very same problems that everyone else deals with. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 27. You remember he said, we ought to be careful about pointing out the specks in other people's eyes when we have a log in our own eye. And so as you read the Ten Commandments, it's easy to read the Ten Commandments with someone else in mind. And as we go through these uh, over the next few weeks, you may be thinking of someone who really needs to hear that message. I want to encourage you not to do that. I want to encourage you. Listen, it's, it's very easy, especially with the first four commandments, which have to do with our, our love for God, kind of a vertical relationship. It's kind of easy to see how they apply to us directly. We think, you know, well, sometimes we don't always put God first, and sometimes we pursue other idols in our life, and we don't always remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and we can kind of see how that applies to our life. But as we shift to the last six commandments, it's, it's easy, and this last six commandments, commandments, of course, have to do with our love for other people, our love for our neighbor, kind of the horizontal relationship. It's very easy to begin to think that they don't really apply to us, but they apply to other people. So we read them and we say, well, <clears throat> you know, thank God uh, we aren't thieves. We don't steal. Uh, we don't lie. You know, well, at least we haven't murdered anybody. Well, hold on. Let's not be too quick to assume that the people who really need this are out there. We need these words just as much as anyone. 
It's easy to read the sixth commandment, which has to do with not murdering, and think, finally, I've come to a commandment that I haven't broken. Not so fast. There's, we'll see this this morning, there, there's more than one way to murder somebody. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. It's very simple. Do not murder. In Hebrew, only two words. No murder. At one level, this is a very simple command. No murder. There, there are no reasons given. There are no promises extended. If you keep this command, there's no explanatory information. It's just simple and straightforward. No murder. I actually think that there's something to be said for that. It's just so obvious. This command is so basic, so self-explanatory that it stands here unadorned, unexplained. The command is seen to be so basic, so self-explanatory. The fundamental right to human life, so basic that it should just be simply understood on face value. No murder. I think if we look at this commandment within the overall context of Scripture, it, we actually find that even though this command is simple, it's also multi-layered, it's comprehensive, and it actually speaks to every single one of us today. Just because you may not have murdered someone this week doesn't mean that the sixth command doesn't matter for your life, each and every one of you today. And so I want to ask three questions of the text this morning. Number one, why does this command matter? Number two, what does this command mean? And then number three, how does this command make a difference in our lives today? So the first question is very simple. Why does this command matter? And the, the answer to that is very simple. This command not to murder matters because God loves life. Can we say that together? God loves life. To understand the, the significance of this command in Exodus chapter 20, you actually need to begin with the beginning. You need to think all the way back to the book of Genesis and the very first chapter of the first book of the Bible. Because in Genesis chapter 1, you find that it is God who creates life. He creates all kinds of life. He creates living creatures on the earth. He creates birds of the sky. He, he creates uh, uh, the, the slimy things under the water that some of us like to catch and fry. He creates all this kind of life. But then as the pinnacle of his creation, he creates a man and a woman. And he says, after having created life, it is good. So God actually attaches value to the life that he has made. He associates value with it. Not only that, if you look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, it says that this man and this woman, Adam and Eve, that he made, he creates them in his own image. Male and female, he created them in the image of God, he created them. What that means is, and theologians debate about what does it mean to be made in the image of God. We'll talk about some of that in the fall when we dive into the book of Genesis. But one thing is very clear. God doesn't call any other creature, cr creature, he doesn't call any other creature that he's made. He doesn't call them an image bearer. So, right, we, we are dog people at the Abair house. We've got two beautiful dogs, but God doesn't create a dog and say, in my image. Amy is a plant person. She loves to cultivate and uh, tend to beautiful flowers, but God doesn't say flowers or trees uh, are made in his image. It's only mankind, humans, male and female, 
in his image. And so that tells us whatever else it means to be made in the image of God, one thing for sure is this, there is something unique about human life. No other creature bears God's image. That means that human life, listen to me, is special. It is, it is sacred because every human life is made in the image of God, it has inherent dignity and worth. And I think that's important because no matter, <clears throat> no matter how you might feel about yourself, you need to realize that God says you're special because you're an image bearer of God. You know, it, it, uh, it, I think it's, it's important to remind ourselves of that that no life is meaningless. Every life matters. Every life is special. And so even if you look at yourself in the mirror and you look at the person looking back at you and you say, not that big of a deal, not very special, that's not true. The Bible says that every human life is unique and special and it matters and it's full of meaning because you were made in the image of God. It doesn't matter what our world says. Sometimes our world says entire categories of people are not valuable or not special, but the Bible says that God loves life and he calls it very good and he makes human life in his own image, which means that he values it. But you find out very quickly as you continue in the story of the Bible not only that God loves life, but that Satan hates life. In fact, the Bible says that Satan comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And I think that's a good reminder for each and every one of us that Satan hates life and Satan hates your life. You need to recognize when you woke up this morning, Satan had already gotten up, put on his pants one leg at a time, had his coffee, and started working to destroy you because Satan hates you. Satan hates your life. He hates your marriage. He hates your family. And Satan works overtime to destroy you. Satan hates what God has made. And he especially hates the lives of the people of God. And so when you come to Genesis chapter three, it just takes three chapters for things to mess up. God creates life. He creates life in his image. He calls it very good. But then in Genesis chapter three, he puts Adam and Eve in a garden. He says they shouldn't touch or eat the fruit of the tree in the garden or they will surely die. And so Satan, because he wants the people to die, tempts Adam and Eve to rebel against the God of life. And Adam and Eve take the fruit, they rebel against God, and they incur human judgment for their sin, and death enters the world because Satan hates life. And things go very badly from there. In Genesis chapter 3, you have the introduction of death into the world. Genesis chapter 3 is followed immediately by Genesis chapter 4, where you have the first human murder. Cain kills his brother Abel. And as if the author of Genesis is just trying to paint a, a downward spiral for us, you see Genesis chapter 4 begins with a murder, brother to brother, but it also ends with a murder. We're introduced to this unusual character named Lamech, and Lamech, there's this verse about Lamech that he is also a murderer, but he takes murder even to an extreme. The, the, the text, Lamech says, uh, I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So this mysterious character, Lamech, at the end of Genesis chapter 4 says, a young man hit me and I responded by murdering him. So there's this sense in Genesis chapter 4 that you have this culture of death that begins to emerge. And there's a sense of injustice, right? A young man hits Lamech. Lamech responds by killing the young man. It's like in the, the, uh, the, 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 the movie, The Untouchables. You remember that scene with Sean Connery? Sean Connery. It's my best. That's the best. Uh, it's not very good. But 
Sean Connery looks at, to Kevin Costner and he says, you want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a... Okay, you've heard it. You've seen that movie. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. All right. That's the Chicago way. Well, you see the Chicago way in Genesis chapter four. You punch me, I'm going to kill you. You pull a knife, I'm going to pull a gun. You send one of mine to the hospital, I'm sending one of yours to the morgue. That's the culture of death that comes because of this satanic rebellion. And God takes that very seriously, very seriously. In fact, if you look at Genesis chapter nine, God addresses this culture of death. It'll be on the screens, but if if you have a Bible, look at Genesis chapter nine, verses five and six. This is what God says. He says, I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. Why? For God made humans in his image. Just a couple of things to notice in those verses. First of all, notice that God attaches the most serious of all possible consequences to murder. Life for life. If you, uh, in the Old Testament, if you would steal something from someone, if I was to take Preston's goat and steal his goat, I would owe Preston restitution. Now, there, it's interesting, if you read the, later on in Exodus, there's a, a degree of seriousness. So if I take your goat, for instance, Preston, and I fire up the barbecue grill this afternoon, and I grill your goat and eat it, then I owe you five goats, okay? But if I steal your goat and you catch me before I grill that goat, then I only owe you two goats, Okay, either way, that's restitution. So the Old Testament kind of has a scale of consequences. If I steal your goat, I owe you two goats. If I grill your goat, I owe you five goats. But notice the scale of consequences for murder. God is saying, if you take someone's life, you owe your life. So so God is elevating the sacredness and the seriousness of taking a human life by saying that the only consequence serious enough to match the transgression of murder is death. But also notice the reason that he's attaching here to the instruction about murder, for God made humans in his image. You see the connection there? Don't take a human life. Why? Because humans are made in the image of God. Some of you have uh, seen the stories over the last few months about climate activists who are very you know, frustrated about Ford trucks and stuff like that. And so they've decided to take out their frustration by going to museums and, you know, throwing paint and tomato soup on priceless pieces of art. And in fact, there was one that went into a museum last year and threw tomato soup on a priceless Van Gogh painting. That their anger defaced something that was beautiful and priceless and irreplaceable. There's a sense in Genesis 9, 6 that if you take a human life, you are defacing the image of God. You are defacing something that is beautiful and priceless and irreplaceable because humans bear the image of God and we deface God's image when we take a human life. Folks, this shows us how God values life. It shows us that He loves life. 
And so this command not to murder, why does it matter? It matters because it shows us something about God Himself. This commandment shows us something about God's very nature, His very character, that God is the God of life. He is the giver of life. There are other gods in the ancient world that were not gods of life. If you think about like Moloch, that's a god of death. It's a god that requires human sacrifice. But Israel's God was a different kind of God. Yahweh was a God who loves life. He's the giver of life. He gives life value and meaning, and He considers the taking of life a serious matter because God loves life. A friend of mine wrote recently about a a moment where you went to a gas station and it's in the middle of a Sam's parking lot and, and there's all these cars driving around and all of this concrete and all of this noise and all of this busyness. But he says, I saw a Christian lady who works there and she was looking at something in her hand and I asked what it was and she showed me a roly-poly crawling on her hand. I didn't want him to get run over, she said. So... She brought him over some green space through all the cars and the concrete, and she brought that little roly-poly and let it go in the grass. There's a sense in which life is precious. And as Christian people, we say God has made life. He's made human life in His image. God loves life, and because He loves life, we should love life too. That's why this command matters. Now, what does the command mean? Well, this command addresses a couple of different things. First of all, it addresses our actions, but it also addresses our attitudes. And so, it addresses an action. First thing you need to understand is that it, 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 the action that it describes here is straightforward. You do not murder, the text tells us. Now, the word <clears throat> that's used here, it's translated murder, does not mean that there's never a time to kill. So to translate this, do not kill, some of you have a translation that says do not kill, that's probably too broad of a way to translate this. There are all kinds of circumstances in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, where humans are commanded to take life. In Romans chapter 13, we're told that government is given the sword of execution, the sword of judgment to pursue evildoers and maintain justice. In Genesis chapter 9, which we just looked at, says that if you shed human blood, by humans your blood should be, be shed. So there's a sense of justice, the death penalty in Genesis chapter 9. The action being addressed here is not just any kind of killing. It is unjust or unwarranted taking of human life. That's why the CSB, which is what I'm preaching from this morning, that's why it translates it murder. So here's what it means. Here's the action that it's addressing, okay? It's very straightforward. It means you can't just go around killing people. Amen? Can we amen that? You can't just go around killing people. You might want to. You might be mad at someone. You might have been hurt by someone. Someone might have insulted you. You might want to take out revenge. But the one action that this text is restricting is murder. You cannot murder someone. You can't just take out that desire for revenge by taking their life. If someone cuts you off in traffic, you cannot pull a gun. All right, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch right there. So murder is a violation of the sixth commandment. Now listen, that would have been very new and very different for the Israelites because they are coming out of a culture of death, right? You see the culture of death in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, but if you come into the book of Exodus, remember Exodus chapter 20 begins with God saying, I've brought you out of Egypt. 
Think about the Israelites' experience in Egypt. They were living in a culture of death where human life was disregarded. Think about life under Pharaoh. Pharaoh treated humans like ants. He did not regard human life. He viewed some lives as being worthless and meaningless and able to just have a total disregard for human life in his treatment of the Hebrew slaves. You see that same culture of death with Moses. When Moses responds by killing an Egyptian, you remember that story? And then the next day he comes back out and he, the, the Israelites, the Hebrew people are even worried now. Is, is this how we're going to live? M Moses, are you going to murder one of us? And so there's this culture of death. That's what the Israelites are used to. And yet God is saying, if you're going to be my people, I'm calling you out of that. I am calling you into a culture that values life. I'm calling you to be a different kind of people. And the kind of way of life I'm calling you to is where human life is valued and protected and murder is prohibited. Now listen, that, that comes to bear in, in our lives in a, in, in a variety of ways. There's a constellation of ethical issues that that speaks to. It, it speaks to crime, violent crime, right? We as Christians have an ethic because of the sixth commandment that we cannot respond with violence when we have been mistreated. And so violent crime, violent murder, that Christian ethic would speak to that. The sixth commandment would speak to that. Uh, things like suicide, right? How do we think about suicide as Christian people? Well, you know, you might be to a point in your life where you're feeling depressed and you're feeling low and you're feeling down and maybe you feel like your life is meaningless and you think that the world would be better off without you and you, you may be thinking, I can take my own life and nobody would notice. The sixth command speaks to that because it says that God made life and he says every life is valuable and unique and special and we don't have the right to take our lives. We don't have the right to take someone else's life. We don't have the right to take our own life because God loves, what, what did I say earlier? God loves life. How about abortion? What's the Christian view on abortion? Well, we believe that every human life bears the image of God and is therefore worthy of dignity and respect and protection and honor. And so every human life at every stage from from natural conception to natural death, from, from the womb to the tomb, from the moment that sperm and egg meet and form an embryo, that is a human life that has dignity, worth, and should be protected. And so why do we care as Christians about the abortion issue? Listen, it's not because we don't care about young women and their situations, and the church to really be pro-life ought to be doing everything that we can to support those young women and buy diapers and be willing to babysit and be willing to be adoptive families. We need to be fully pro-life. But the reason that that issue matters is because of the sixth commandment. We believe this is a human life that should be protected and that all life has value. It's why we care about certain forms of birth control. If there's abortive, uh, abortifacient birth control that would uh, destroy an embryo, we would say as Christians that that would be the taking of a human life. It's why things even like in vitro fertilization, which has enabled so many families to have children, we have to think carefully as Christians about that issue because if you form an embryo and that embryo is implanted into the mother, but there's another seven or eight embryos that have been formed, what happened to those, what, what's happening to those embryos? We, we care about every one of those embryos because those are human lives that have dignity and worth and value. It matters for things like euthanasia. 
So there are countries right now where you can go, and if you get to a certain age, certain countries would say, because you are elderly, you're no longer a contributing member of society, you can take this pill or have this shot, and we'll end it very quietly and peacefully. And Christians would say no to that, because every life at every stage matters and deserves to be protected from the womb to the tomb. It matters how we treat those with special needs, and so there are some you know, radical ethicists who would say uh, that certain categories of people don't deserve protection. We would say as Christians, we care about every human life. It's why Peter Singer, who teaches ethics at Princeton and advocates for infanticide in certain cases, we would say as Christians, the Bible restricts that because every human life is made by God in the image of God, is valuable and special and meaningful. Listen, if you have a relative, I think this is such an important thing to think about. If you have a relative who's been in a car accident and there's been brain damage, it's tempting to come into a hospital room and you'll hear this sometimes, oh, they're just going to live life as a vegetable. No, that's a human life. I know what a vegetable is. A vegetable's on my plate. That human life is a human life with inherent dignity and worth and value. And it's dehumanizing to say, oh, they're just not going to have a life that matters anymore. So as we think about how this command makes a difference, it makes a difference for a whole constellation of ethical issues. How we think about even war. Is a war just or unjust? There are certain kinds of acts of war that are prohibited for a Christian because of the Sixth Commandment. But I, I want you not, not just to think about the kind of the big ethical issues, which we could talk about that for a long time, but I want us to think more personally because I told you that this commandment doesn't just speak to our actions. It actually speaks deeper than that. This commandment speaks to our attitudes. You say, Pastor, where, where are you getting that? Well, I'm getting it from Jesus. Because Jesus actually quotes the sixth commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. If you've never seen that before, I want you to stick your finger in Exodus 20. I want you to flip over to Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus speaks to the issue of murder. And I want you to see how he elevates this command and expands what it means to obey this command not to murder. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 5. We'll have it on the screens here for you, beginning in verse 21. He says, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. So he's quoting Exodus 20, 13. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is, what does it say right there? Angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And whoever, let's say it together, whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. And whoever says, Literally, the word is raka, but it means you fool will be subject to hellfire. So notice what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the commandment not to murder doesn't just have to do with the actual act of murder. It actually has to deal with the attitudes underneath the action of murder, that what God really cares about is not just that you don't just go murder your neighbor. God actually is after something deeper than that. He wants you to have your heart dealt with in such a way that you wouldn't murder. And in God's eyes, what he's saying is, in God's eyes, if you, if you uh, say, well, I haven't killed anybody today, so I've kept the sixth commandment, 
Jesus would say, actually, no, if you've had anger in your heart towards somebody, in God's eyes, it's as, just as if you've killed, killed them. If you insult someone today, in God's eyes, it is just as if you've murdered them. If you call someone you fool, it is, in God's eyes, it is just as if you have murdered them. Jesus is going to do the same thing with other commandments, by the way. On the commandment on adultery, he says the commandment on adultery is not just that you don't commit adultery. He says, actually, if you look with lust in your heart towards somebody else, you've committed adultery in the heart. See, what Jesus is dealing with here is not just the act of murder, it's the attitude of murder. It's, the, it's murder of the heart. And Jesus saying, is saying, in God's eyes, it's the same. I, I want to read a, a kind of an extended quote to you from a, a book by Jennifer Wilkin that she's written on the Ten Commandments. And it's worth reading this long quote because I could not put it any better than Jen does. Listen to what she says, talking about Matthew chapter 5. She says, the exclamation you fool, is a term of extreme contempt. The movement from anger to insult to raka might be mapped like this. First, I'm angry with you in response to a hurt. Next, I begin to question your character with an insult. Then, I begin to question your worth as a person. As anger degrades into contempt, the personhood of another is devalued. People who murder have embraced contempt to the point that they believe another image bearer to be so worthless as to not deserve to live. People who embrace contempt have, in, uh, uh, have indulged anger to the point that they believe their injury merits the greater injury of another. How many of you have ever been, that, been there? Anybody willing to say, like, I've lived there, right? You hurt me, I want to hurt you more. You, you hurt me so bad, you deserve revenge. You deserve to be hurt in a worse way. People who indulge anger have made a conscious decision of the will to nurture a negative emotion into a viable seedling of contempt, a seedling which over time yields a bloody harvest. Listen to this. The impulse to murder is nothing less than the outer workings of a lesser impulse that we choose to indulge on a regular basis. From little league games to rush hour traffic jams, we see evidence around us that people regularly express anger beyond what a circumstance merits. We indulge and overexpress it routinely. Our exaggerated responses reveal that we did not simply become angry in the instance, but that we carry a supply of pent-up anger with us at all times. You can see this in rush hour traffic, can't you? You can see this on Facebook when somebody posts a political meme, can't you? Just read the comment thread there. Sadly, in some churches, I thank God, not this church, but in some churches, you can see it in church business meetings where angry people who are carrying around a pent-up supply of anger all the time are just looking for opportunities to express it. And what is murder if not just the expression of what's in the heart? That's what Jesus is, is saying in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is interpreting the full meaning of the sixth commandment. And, and listen to me. This is what he's saying. What he's saying 
is that God doesn't just expect for you to be the kind of person who doesn't murder someone. What God wants is for you to be the kind of person for whom the very idea of murder is unthinkable. That's why 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15 says that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. What God wants to address is not just the act of murder, it's a murderous attitude which begins with hatred in my heart for someone else. It begins with angry impulses that are not submitted to the lordship of Jesus. John Calvin once said that the hand commits the murder, but the mind conceives it. And the reality is I can murder you in my mind over and over and over again without ever carrying out the act. And what God wants to to deal with is not just the action, but the attitude. God isn't just after technical submission to this command. He's after your heart. Amen? He's not just after the keeping of the letter of the law, but there's a spirit to this law. Martin Luther said that this command requires pure hands and a pure heart because we can kill with any part of our bodies. So how does this command make a difference? Well, it makes a very big difference in our life. Not only for that constellation of ethical issues, right? There's a Christian worldview when we think about birth control and abortion and euthanasia and infanticide and just war theory and all these types of things. But it matters in a much more personal way. How does this command make a difference? Here's how it makes a difference. It means God is not just wanting me not to kill you. He's wanting me, he, he's wanting to change me from the inside out to where I'm the kind of person who would think that killing you is an unthinkable act. Uh, in other words, this command not only means that there are some things to be avoided, like murder and anger and hatred, but there's also some things that God wants to be cultivated in my life. God wants to cultivate the kind of virtue in my life so that I am transformed from the inside out, so I'd be the kind of person who thinks murder is unthinkable. You know the Westminster Catechism, some of you who grew up up with a Presbyterian or Anglican or liturgical kind of background, you're, you're familiar with the Westminster Catechism, but Westminster says something very helpful about the Ten Commandments. It says this, that when you, when you, when you read the Ten Commandments, whenever something is required, the opposite is forbidden. And when something is forbidden, the opposite is required. So, for instance, the commandment, do not covet, that's something forbidden. The opposite is also entailed. We should be content. It's not just that we shouldn't bear false witness. It's also we should tell the truth. It's not just don't commit adultery. It's also honor your spouse. And so, whatever is forbidden, the opposite is required. So, how does that apply to the commandment about not murdering? What what that means is this, It's not just about not murdering someone. That would be something forbidden. But what does it mean for the opposite? It means that God wants us to be the kind of people who cultivate a love and honor and value for other human lives. That what God wants for us as Christian people is that we're the kind of people who would look at other image bearers and says, you are worth something. You matter. You have dignity. Your life is special. Your life should be protected. That's what God wants for us, valuing and honoring, cherishing and preserving life. Seeing another person, whoever they are, as God sees them, as an image bearer worthy of dignity and honor. I've told you a couple weeks ago when we looked at commandment number five, I told you that 
you know, the command to honor your father and mother, that, that actually the home is a laboratory where you learn how to honor everyone. I think that the reason that commandment number six exists is because people don't pay attention to commandment number five. If we honored other people like we should do in commandment number five, we wouldn't have a need for commandment number six. If we really honored one another, we wouldn't murder one another or have murderous thoughts toward one another. So not killing, which is one of the simplest commands, actually requires a whole range of virtues to be cultivated in us, not just so that we won't kill, but so that the impulses that would drive us potentially to have murderous thoughts will actually be extinguished entirely. The virtues that God wants to cultivate in us are things like gentleness uh, instead of anger, uh, self-control instead of hatred, uh, patience, love. Think about this, self-control, gentleness, patience, love. What am I talking about here? Cody, help me out. What am I talking about here? Fruit of the Spirit, right? This is the fruit of the Spirit. What kind of people do we need to be that, that the thought of murdering someone would be unthinkable? We need to be the kind of people who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, which means how does this commandment make a difference in our lives? It actually calls for us to be made new. The only way to live out commandment number six, to have my heart dealt with in such a way that murderous thoughts even would begin to be addressed by God, is that I need a heart transplant. Because the reality is, I don't honor and value life like I should. I do tend to minimize people and dehumanize people. You cut me off in traffic, I will get mad. I do have angry thoughts. I do have murderous thoughts, which means I need a new heart. I need to be made new, which, which means that this command, which shows us God's design for the value and preciousness of human life, it also serves as a sign that points me forward to my need for Jesus. Because without Jesus, I cannot be the kind of person that God wants me to become. God wants me to become a certain kind of person. That's what commandment six is about. That's how it makes a difference in my life. It, it means I must become a certain kind of person, and I can't become that kind of person without Jesus. You see, the Ten Commandments are like a GPS in your car. A GPS can tell you the direction you needed to go, but it doesn't give you the power to get there. You need a car with an engine to do that. And the law cannot be the engine that powers you to get to where you need to go. It can point you to where you need to go. You need the gospel to be the engine that empowers your obedience. The, the law says, this is how I want you to live. The gospel is how you get there. The gospel is that work that Jesus does in our lives to take the, the old man and put him into a grave and bring a brand new man resurrected with a new heart and new affections and new loves and new impulses. That's something that God has to do. And here's how he does it. By sending his son who loves us so much that he was willing to be killed, he was willing to be murdered so that we could have new life and that we could have the kind of life that values and honors other human lives. Jesus put it this way in John 10.10, 10, I 
have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus, who is the God of life, endured death so that we could get, be given new life. If you're here today and you've never experienced that new life, God offers it as a free gift. There's nothing you can do to purchase it or earn it. Once you have it, there's nothing you can do to lose it. It's just a gift. And if you've never received that gift, we want you to have the opportunity to receive it today. In fact, at the end of the service, there will be people out in the hallway in the lobby who are decision prayer partners. They would love to talk with you about how to experience new life in Jesus. If you're here today and you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but you still battle against angry impulses and hateful thoughts and murderous ideas about the people around you, understand that God wants to form you to look more like Christ. And here's some really good news. God loves you so much, you're a sanctification project. I'm a sanctification project. God loves me so much, not only is He going to save me, He's going to change me, and He's going to keep working on my life. He's not going to stop working on my life until I look just like His Son. Isn't that good news? And so our, our job is to lay ourselves out on the operating, operating table each and every day to say, God, my heart's ugly. I need a heart transplant. Uh, it's, to, it's to sit ourselves in the dentist chair and say, there's some cavities that need to be drilled out. We say to God, drill it out. Do something new in my life. That's the, that's the work of sanctification. That's the work of Christian growth. It's where we submit ourselves to God's work in our life to make us, shape us, form us to look more like His Son, Christ. And so if there's anything that needs to be submitted to Him, maybe an angry thought, a hateful impulse, just submit it to Him. Say, God, I'm on the operating table. Do your work. Change my heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us and your commitment to us, not just to save us, but to sanctify us. God, I pray that we would be a people who embody a love for life, an honoring of other human lives. Help us to see each other the way you see us as image bearers. And God, I pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as the God of life, that they would find new life in Christ today. We pray in his name. Amen.